Igniting well is the pursuit of a lifetime. You may be at mile marker one of this wonderful life journey and thinking for the first time about embracing the life of a writer. Or maybe you're further along and ready to publish some of your ideas. I'm Melissa Parks with Dave Getz, and we are fellow travelers on this extended road trip to improve our writing and publish our ideas. We hope this podcast helps you make progress on your writing journey. Now, let's buckle up and write. Creating a character arc in a standalone piece of fiction is a challenge, no doubt. But creating a character arc that covers a series of books is an even greater challenge. How do you ensure your character is evolving, but not too rapidly that there isn't room for evolution in the following books? In today's podcast episode, Joshua Rutherford, author of the fantasy series, The Four Point Chronicles, talks with us about his approach to character development in a series. He also discusses how his penchant for screenwriting helped him write fiction that was immersive. He also shares what he looks for in the review process. And he also honestly talks about how he squeezes in writing while holding down a job and taking care of his family. Welcome, Josh, to our podcast. We're so excited to have you with us. You have such an encouraging story for our audience having written in the seams of your life. And gosh, you just have so many great insights about what it takes to write a novel. So we're going to dive in and just ask you first to tell us a little bit about your books and what got you into writing fantasy fiction. Thank you so much, Melissa, for having me. And I absolutely love this topic because it's so near and dear to my heart. i First started writing, oh gosh, many, many, many years ago. I don't want to betray my age, <laughs> but <laughs> in a time I cannot remember, I've always had an interest in writing. I've always wanted to be creative and use my imagination. And initially, I thought my imagination would take me to the big screen. So I had aspirations to become a filmmaker, specifically a screenwriter, to start out there and possibly move into directing or producing. I did study film and video in college and started screenplay writing. And then the Great Recession hit and any leads that I had completely dried up. So I continued to dabble in screenwriting, but I just wasn't satisfied with it as a medium. And we oftentimes hear the adage, write what you know. Well, that doesn't really resonate with me because my everyday life is just so, let's just say boring. <laughs> you know, I sit in front of a computer. Yeah. Um, I, I don't like travel extensively. I don't have this like long backstory. So my imagination just goes wild and it takes me to these different worlds, these fantasy universes. And that kind of led me to more fantasy writing. And then as I kind of found screenplay opportunities drying up, I just kind of a natural segue led to novel writing, where the medium is a little bit more, uh, let's just say, opportunistic and a little bit more forgiving, and I can pretty much put on the page whatever I want. So tell us about your books. Can you give us the names and kind of a brief summary of what they're about and the world that you've created? My first novel is called Sons of Chania, and that is a story about a band of refugees they go back to their homeland, and then they find themselves uh, reconnecting with family, but also being embroiled in a a war. 
from an aggressive uh, nation. That was my first uh, attempt at writing a novel. I'm very proud of it. And it just really kicked off the process for myself. It led to my second novel called Midnight. And that is the story of a woman, a female warrior, who lives in a society where women are not encouraged to express themselves. So the women, therefore, when all the men are asleep at night, the women live their lives at night. And she, in turn, becomes an assassin, a warrior of sorts, a midnight warrior, hence the name of the novel. And that was my second novel. And then my next novels are part of a series called The Four Point Chronicles, which focus on quadruplets, identical quadruplets, four brothers, who live their lives in secret because they're all pretending to be one prince. And they eventually ascend the throne and become one king. And all the trials and tribulations that come with leading a double life and trying to keep an entire kingdom together with one big secret. All of my attempts at fantasy writing deal with marginalized groups, with those that are don't typically get represented, at least in my view, enough in the mainstream. That's kind of been the focus of my novels and why I kind of lean towards fantasy. So with your four-point chronicles, is that do you have multiple points of view for that, like one for each brother? For the four-point chronicles, each chapter is dedicated to a royal or to someone within the royal family. Most of them center on the brothers, but then I also do a little bit of the backstory of their father, who was the king, and I won't give too much away, <laughs> before they ascended the throne. And then I also focus sometimes on other royals, such as their grandfather, or not to spoil too much, but possibly a princess or two, or a queen that comes up later on in the stories. So how do you balance all of those different point of views in a single story? Well, that's a very challenging thing. Certainly, uh, the fantasy novels that I read in my spare time, they do a good job of doing that. So I kind of use them as my inspiration. What I've been doing with the Four Point Chronicles is I've been usually following one chronology and then telling that from different points of view. So like the story will progress, but I'm, one point of view will start off, say, a chronology of events, then it will transfer to another chronology. Oftentimes, the plot dictates whose point of view it will be as well. For instance, in the Four Point Chronicles, one brother is a warrior. He's kind of the one whose skill is fighting and you know he like really gets in there and gets involved so his involvement when there's a battle scene becomes more prevalent and then there's another brother who's more academic more the scholar so when his skills are needed i'll switch to that point of view very much as a balancing act between the four brothers and then all the other royals by this point in the story i'm working on the third novel in this six book installment I've gotten a pretty good cadence of like who should pick up and then who should kind of carry the torch through the rest of the series. So tell me when you're building a fantasy world, where do you start and what are you looking to achieve when you create a fantasy world? What are some tips for people who want to write in this genre about how to create a convincing fantasy world? Well, I've definitely learned a lot <laughs> in creating <laughs> uh, my first fantasy world all the way to the current universe. Admittedly, when I first started out, I was, let's say, privy to flights of fancy. 
And by that, I mean, like just relying a lot on like moments of inspiration. But then once I got into the novel writing process, I realized very quickly that required a certain level of discipline and that there were questions that would be answered and everything. Definitely when building a fantasy world, a fantasy universe, I find that focusing primarily first for me, what works for me is focusing on the characters. And I feel that that oftentimes drives the story. When I first began, I focused, I was more story focused, but then all these questions would come up as to, you know, who would do what and who would kind of drive the story at this particular section and everything. So then when I created the Four Point Chronicles, jumping ahead a few novels, I found that really those questions were better answered when I really delved into who the characters were. And my character development really took center stage at the onset of all this pre-work that goes into a novel. So by the time I started the first book in the Four Point Chronicles, I had a really great idea of who the characters were going to be. Now, that still raised questions as to how the story would unfold, but I also found that by really narrowing my focus on character development, a lot of the roadblocks that I experienced in my previous novels, I could meet more efficiently by having just really a good sense, uh, a key sense of who the characters were. So this is all about kind of making that transition from idea formation to writing a novel. So what are some other issues you, you'd encountered in this transition? So you kind of have this, this flight of fancy, as you like to call it, this idea, but how do you begin then to transfer that to actually writing a full no novel? And what, what's your process for developing your idea? You talk about story questions, and obviously that has to do with plot. But what are some other strategies you use to actually writing your novel? Yeah, well, what I developed is, and kind of a key rule that I live by as a writer is, you don't have to have everything figured out to get started. And that's something that I really struggled with as a, say, recovering type A personality, as a recovering perfectionist, because, you know, when I did my first novel, you know, I wrote this 20 page outline and had everything just, I thought, figured out and everything had down to the page number or page numbers. And then as I started writing the novel, I would just get tripped up on these details that would lead me to different directions. Of course, I still outline now, especially in my current books, since I'm doing a series. But I found that what worked for me is just getting started as soon as possible. So being able to just write snippets and getting those chapters started and putting my ideas as to actually what would unfold into the document itself, into the draft itself, and not relying on trying to fine tune my notes or my outlines or anything else that I do in the pre-work. That has really helped me to kind of get a sense, not only how long my story is going to be, what it's going to be about, but also a sense of style to make sure that the outline, the notes, that everything starts to match up. So I really kind of just dive into the writing portion with kind of an idea of what I'm going to develop as I'm doing the outline to make sure that style and substance kind of really converge and match each other early on. So tell me then, it sounds like you have a beginning point in mind and an ending point in mind. When you've written your novels in the past, is the ending point ever different than you expected by the time you get into the writing? Or do you always end where you expect you're going to end? 
I don't know if I want to use the term always. I'd say yeah. often <laughs> I end where I think I'm going to end. I would say though, especially in writing a series, sometimes that ending, and I'm using air quotes to describe ending, maybe I will delay it until like the next book, or maybe it, I will end somewhere else. So the series of events usually doesn't change in my novel, but kind of the path to get there and where I may end one book and pick up another, that's what sometimes changes because oftentimes that middle point, which is what a lot of writers, including myself, struggle with, that can take on a life of its own. So the beginning and ending are pretty firm in my mind most of the time. They're open to being fluid, to being open to change. But yeah, the series of events typically stays in line with my vision and only kind of the starts and stops leading up to, say, one novel and picking up to another, especially in the series like I'm working on, that might change organically according to what the characters go through and how the story progresses. What are some signals that you're lost in the middle? And how do you readjust when you're in that spot of just feeling lost with where you're at and you're not exactly sure how to move forward? What's some advice that you have? The two pieces of advice, which I, to this day, struggle with are kill your darlings or start late, finish early. And usually when I'm lost, I really have to have just a gut check and to see if what I'm writing makes sense to the story, makes sense for the characters, and is really something that serves the story, not just something I'm satisfied with. So often I've written something that's just completely like beautiful in prose and really is just something I'm proud of. I find myself just going through this wrenching endeavor of having to cut it down or to edit it because it's not what the story deserves. So usually I'll have to do some trimming if I feel that something is dragging on too long. And I think that's something a lot of writers deal with. Oftentimes, it's not that they don't write enough. It's that the idea percolates and then they get a little long in the tooth and then they have to cut down, such as myself. That's oftentimes what I end up doing. And then oftentimes when I'm finding that something just doesn't serve the story, if I go a little off topic or I stay on topic too long, I'll see if there's an opportunity to perhaps use that material or use that inspiration later on in the story. So maybe it'll be something I wrap up with a quick ending, but maybe that thread will be something I refer to later on in another chapter or a character will reference it in dialogue. So I kind of keep anything that I cut in the back of my mind in case it needs to be referenced later. Can you explain to our listeners the phrase, start late, finish early? That's something I picked up, well, especially in a lot of the screenwriting courses and seminars that I've taken, start late, end early. <laughs> That's what I've been taught where you, and you can see this not only in film, but in other pieces of fiction and not even nonfiction for that matter, where a story is introduced to an audience oftentimes after it started. So you kind of just jump right in there because any context is either implied or comes up later. I'd say probably a good example of this, I have a writer friend who does noir and he does crime fiction. So oftentimes you'll be introduced to a crime after it's already happened. And that is done for a number of reasons. In addition to creating suspense, 
really takes the audience on a journey of how these things actually develop and really sets the scene for not only what the characters are involved in, but also kind of what the audience, what the reader is going to be taken through. And to end early, well, again, kind of it creates some suspense. It kind of leaves some cliffhangers, if you will. And it oftentimes serves to keep the reader invested, especially through any points of transition or where anything gets really involved because we all want to find out what comes next. Can you share some more principles that you learned from your history and screenwriting that you apply to your novel writing? I would say probably one of the things that has been stressed to me in my screenwriting lessons is to have a strong sense of any sensory storytelling to keep things experiential. So for instance, in a screenplay, the two senses you focus on, well, the first sense you really focus on is anything that's visual, what you can see. And then if it's pertinent to your story, what you can hear. So because in screenwriting, you don't get into people's minds. You just present them with an experience of what they can see, of what they can hear. So the purple prose that you will, that you see in novel writing of like being very linguistic and painting kind of a picture that can only exist in one's mind, that's a big no-no within screenwriting for the most part. I mean, there's screenwriters that break that rule on occasion, the Quentin Tarantinos of the world and everything, but not that often. If it, If you have pros come up too much in your screenplay, it's going to go to the trash heap pretty quickly. So that was key in my development as a novelist, because there's so much that really can connect with a reader on a sensory level. Everything from, you know, kind of just painting this beautiful landscape within the reader's mind to what they hear in terms of dialogue and the sounds of the environment to what they can smell to even like, you know, how hot or cold it can be. Creating that environment where your story exists, that is so key to the storytelling experience. Can you tell us when too much is too much in an instance like that? So when you're writing and you're creating scenes with setting, how how much of that sensory stuff is too much? How do you pull back and how do you provide the right amount? Right amount? In my early writing, I knew that I was so invested in the universe I was creating. And some of the constructive criticism I received is that it was too much. So for instance, uh, one of the reviews that I received, I think on Amazon or through a writer friend is that, you know, 20% of what I had written to build the universe in different areas, of course, could be cut. And while it was very, let's just say biting to hear that criticism, it was also necessary for me to grow as a writer. I would say kind of having the experience of creating worlds, different environments again and again and again, you develop a sixth sense, if you will, what the reader needs to know in that moment. I think too often new writers and even myself is that they feel that the reader needs all the information right up front and then the story can progress. And I think just offering little snippets and being able to break up your universe or world all throughout the story creates for a better reading experience rather than trying to set the scene and all the backstory right in the beginning. 
because then it just kind of drags out. And then the reader also has to be reminded as the story progresses, oh yeah, what happened there? Trying to reduce reminders and trying to spread out your story throughout the novel. I think that's something that I try to keep in mind as I'm going through all the different chapters I lay out in my novels. So you keep talking about your characters, and I'm so intrigued by this because I think you're the first person on that we've had who's written a series with the same characters. And so I'm wondering, how do you how do you develop a character from book one into book two? And I know you said you're working on book three. So what does that development look like? That is both a labor of love and it's heart wrenching. Well, in particular with my characters, they start out so young, so in their late teens. So very much my fantasy series, well, especially the first book, is a coming-of-age story. So they go through all the usual trials and tribulations. For instance, one brother is very cocky and very arrogant, kind of that late teen, early 20, just you think you can take on the world kind of thing. And since he's a prince, I mean, who's going to stop him? And definitely kind of creating the characters has been so laborious, but also so rewarding too, because I am able to create something that has a life beyond one book. In my standalone books, the character development, the character arc has been very limited. But because I'm doing a series, I'm able to start at a place and see that character arc or arcs kind of develop over multiple novels. So I'm able to like elongate and kind of make my characters develop more naturally versus trying to rush their development to meet a certain endpoint, if that makes sense. So who they are throughout the novels, some characters develop a little bit more quickly because of the experiences they have and what they go through, and others go about more slow, slowly. Um, and I don't feel rushed, I guess, is the ultimate takeaway for developing characters in a series, is that if a character isn't referenced all that much within one book, I can always pick up their development within another book, too. To answer your question, bring it full circle. I always have an idea of mind of where I want to start with the characters and an idea of where I want to end. And then throughout the book series, I try to hit different plot points or different points within their arc, what I want them to experience in order to further their development. I'm also curious, how do you get inside of your characters' heads? Because you said that you wrote Midnight, and that's a female character is your main character, right? And then you're writing from a royal's perspective. So do you do research on this? How how do you just get into certain characters' heads where you probably don't have much in common with them? I have a very honest conversation with myself of what I have and do not have in common with my characters. And then I also try to consider what is unique to them, but also what is very everyday to them. So like, for instance, an experience that you or I may have, like being in the fantasy world, would strike us as being very adventurous. But if you're a prince or a royal or princess, whoever, whose everyday involves being <laughs> in an adventurous landscape, then that may be a little bit more common. So that may be less surprising to you and it may be yet less unique. So I consider their environment and what they experience that may be part of their everyday experiences and then what they may experience to arouse them or to strike them as different. 
you brought up the example of the female warrior from Midnight. So in her case, she her every day is being very stoic, enduring a lot of physical challenges and everything. But as the novel progresses, what is unique to her, what is outside her everyday experience is falling in love and experiencing feelings. So those kind of differences and kind of what naturally and unnaturally occurs to my characters, I really consider. And I kind of go with those psychological or emotional experiences to kind of drive how the characters develop. And to your point, I also do the research of what certain professions may go through to help determine what is everyday and what is unique for them. Can we turn a little bit to your writing process? And I also want to hear about your publishing process, because I think it will just be so insightful for our our audience to hear about. But can you first tell us about how you found time to write these books? Because you mentioned before we started recording that you have a full-time job. And so you're writing these books in your free time and you also have a family, right? So how do you find that time to actually write a novel? I think it's incredible that you're as prolific as you are. Admittedly, I wish I was more prolific. I mean, if this was my full-time job, I'd probably myself and how much I'd want to write. I would come out with a book every month or two. (laughs) My time regardless of my time management, it doesn't allow for that. I would say probably the number one thing I've learned and that balance of trying to write a novel and then doing everything else in my life is to be very forgiving with myself because so much of my life has changed within a very short period of time. For instance, when I wrote my first novel, I did it when I was married, but just before my first son was born. So I had a little bit more time. And then with the series I'm working on, the first book in the series came out the month that my second son was born. And I have two boys. So definitely those writing processes looked wildly different from each other. And I would say what I usually end up doing is as I schedule just my everyday, my day job and everything, I look for opportunities throughout the week. I usually do on a week-by-week basis. I don't like to outline my time too far ahead because things change too rapidly for that to be efficient. I look at my time on a weekly basis to see where there are opportunities. And I keep it very also within a range too. So I don't kind of like say, oh, I'm going to write exactly three hours on this day. I'm like, okay, I can probably do an hour or two, maybe this time at night. And that usually is on a sliding scale. Usually I kind of I'm a little bit more conservative with my expectations of time and my schedule, but I always map out my week ahead of time to give myself opportunities, blocks of writing time. And then from there, I just commit to it and time, more time allows for it. Great. If less time allows, I'm okay with it. And I just will punt it over to the next week and then the next week. And eventually by just repeating the process of revisiting my schedule, I make progress on my novels. I love that you're thinking in terms of short segments of time. So week by week, I think that so many of the writers that we have worked with, they do, they do longer goals, like every day for a month or two months or whatever, I'm going to slot 30 minutes a day. And it's just, it's too much and you're bound to fail. And then when you fail, then you feel bad and you get out of the rhythm completely. So I like this idea of breaking it down week by week. I think that's really helpful. So you also talked about getting feedback in that moment and it, 
the feedback that you received felt a little bit biting. So how did you go about finding somebody to review your work after you're, say, done with a draft that you felt pretty good about? And how did you instruct that person who was giving you feedback? Did you ask them to look for certain things? And then what did you do with the feedback once you received it? I think my expectations of feedback have definitely matured as I've written more. When I first started out, I had no idea what I was doing. And all of that imposter syndrome still kind of feeds into my writing process even to this day. I asked everyone for feedback and I just wanted to know all their thoughts. Fast forward to today, and I think in terms of feedback, I'm much more specific into what I'm looking for. I also have to have a very honest conversation for myself and what I need to work on and what I'm good at in order to really kind of pull the right information from the criticism that I'm seeking. I also seek feedback, and this may sound counterintuitive, from fewer people than I did before, because now there's just maybe just one or two people that I really trust and rely upon to give me consistent feedback. I guess the key is consistency. Not only in terms of their turnaround time from the time they read my work to the time that I receive anything back from them, also terms as far as consistency of they know me as a writer. So they know my style, they know what I'm aiming for. It's just not a one and done reading and then feedback and then I never hear from them again. I try to develop those relationships. So I would say probably with my feedback, what has been key for me, and this is something that I still do, is to seek out a relationship first and then focus on cultivating that. And then the feedback just comes a little bit more consistently, organically, and something that I can really rely upon because I'm working with someone who knows me as a writer. Can you tell us a little bit about the publishing side of your your works? Do you self-publish? Is a hybrid publisher, an indie publisher, a traditional publisher? And what was that entire process like looking for a publishing outlet? That entire process was frustrating, if I could put it in one word. And part of that was driven because of where I was in my life. I'm going to be completely honest, where I was in my life when I was seeking a publisher. I mentioned that my first book came out just before I had my first child. And then fast forward to this book series, I've had my second child. So certainly kind of a lag in traditional publishing is something that has driven me to self-publishing. I have looked into a hybrid publisher as well. And, you know, usually there's a lot of strings attached, and, and including resigning a lot of your creative input and then buying into their services and everything. So, because of all the obstacles I experienced, and partly this was also due to screenwriting, all those barriers to just writing in general, whether you're trying to get a screenplay across the finish line or even a book through a traditional publisher. I like having just that full control over my manuscripts. And that led me to self-publishing. Now, that's not to say that was easier in many ways, because I'm the sole person responsible for the publishing. I've had to jump in and be more of an entrepreneur than I ever thought myself capable of being. I am professing no expertise in that per se. But what I did learn or what I have learned throughout the self-publishing process is just being more cognizant of what platforms work for me, 
also where to find resources, and then being conscious of what I'm good at, but also where I need help. I mean, platforms like Fiverr and being able to connect with other creatives or others that can help in the self-publishing process, I've been more open to, and I feel I have a pretty good sense of what I'm asking for when I'm asking third parties uh, to do services on my behalf, whether it's cover creation, editing, or anything else of that nature. The copies that you sell, are you selling primarily ebooks or are you selling print copies? Primarily ebooks. That's where most of my most of my copies are being sold or in ebooks. And how do you promote your book so people will find it? And also have you ever sought out reviews, formal reviews, so that you have some credibility with your work? And what did that look like? With the formal reviews, I've done that mainly around launch time. And that is still a an environment that I feel is still a little vague because you kind of asked or approach different authors or you'll go through a review site that you find through social media and you might get one back to that to your liking and you might not. <laughs> and you know and the other thing to keep in mind is when, you know, it usually involves a lot of follow-up and everything. While I have done formal reviews, I think where I like getting reviews more through sources where there's not a, let's say, a time element or a deadline attached to them. I've pursued platforms where I can tap into beta readers or just kind of put my work out there more quickly before it's officially self-published or makes ebook form. For instance, in sites like Booksy or Panana, I'll just oftentimes put beta versions of my work and kind of see what the reviews are there to see what's being picked up, what's being clicked on most often to kind of drive my satisfaction, if you will, (laughs) with the review process. Because it can be kind of really gut-wrenching and kind of very emotional when you first start getting your first reviews and with your first, first book and everything. So again, being very gracious to yourself, being forgiving to yourself, that's something I really approach the review process with no matter where I'm trying to reach out to. Do you do any Amazon ads or how do you how do you grow your audience and so your book is purchased? What's your what's your strategy there? My strategy is evolving. <laughs> I'm always looking for different ways. I try to look for those author networks that have either services or a, a membership base or a group where I can kind of promote just organically with a post or something of that nature. And then also with just third parties and investing in any like ads, usually I don't do like a flood of ads. I try to space it out so it's a little bit more consistent. So like I may see a spike in readership on any particular day of the month. And I'll try to spread it out on multiple platforms too, whether it be on Amazon, on Bookseat, or others where I know I have a following. I think this is my final question, and it's not on the list of questions we sent you, but mm-hmm. if you're not becoming filthy rich from writing your book and you're having and it's it's a lot of work, why do you write? What wh- why do you write? Tell our audience why you write. I think lots of people get to that point in their life, like, I'm not making money doing this. Why am I doing this? How do you answer that question? 
That is so personal because when I ask my writer friends the same question, we struggle and stammer to come up with a agreeable answer each and every time. And honestly, it evades us. But speaking just for myself, although trying to keep my response kind of as universal as possible, it's because I feel there's a voice inside me that I need to get out into the world. And the process of doing that is so cathartic and rewarding. Plus, I still honestly, as a writer, hold out hope that I will make it in some capacity where it will be more, say, extrinsically rewarding at some point in time. But until that day comes, if it ever does come, I focus on the passion projects that I'm doing and really making sure that at the end of the day, regardless of my intentions or my goals, that I'm doing this for myself. But I'm also doing it, especially now I'm a father, doing it for my loved ones as well, too. I mean, one of the new goals I have is to one day visualize myself or visualize my family reading my books long after I'm gone and kind of leaving a legacy. That is not why I started out writing, but that is why I continue writing. And that's one of the reasons. And I develop other kind of legacy reasons for that very same feeling. That is a powerful note to end on and so encouraging and something that I think so many of our writers can identify with. So thank you for being vulnerable and sharing that. We've so loved having you with us today, Josh. It's just been such a delight. Your honesty and just your insights have been so valuable. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Melissa and Allison. It's been a pleasure speaking with both of you. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I'm so grateful for your time today. All right, Allison, it's time for our words of the episode. I'll let you go first this time. What's your word for the week? My word of the episode is macabre, and it's M-A-C-A-B-R-E. And it's one of those words that I have a love-hate relationship with because I pronounce words phonetically, and macabre is a word that I mispronounce for many years. How did but, you say? Did you say macabre? Yes, exactly. <laughs> I did that too. Guilty. I'm guilty. <laughs> I'm glad I'm not alone in that. <laughs> anyway, the definition is disturbing and horrifying because of involvement with or depiction of death and injury. And so I've seen this word obviously in like crime thrillers I used to read, but I specifically saw it a few months ago when I was watching a new show called Wednesday. And it's about Wednesday Adams. And so it's kind of a gothic theme. And I watched this show with subtitles on. And so whenever the music would shift, it would go macabre orchestra. And that was the <laughs> description it would use. <laughs> I love subtitles for one. Or captions, whatever, closed captions. That's so funny, though, that they used the word macabre to describe the music. That's great. It's a yeah, great I, word. I thought it was super, it was unique. I've never seen such a unique way to describe music. Usually it just says music, you know, <laughs> something simple like that. So Right, or dark, mysterious, something like that. Mm -hmm, a little mm -hmm. bit more pedestrian language. That's a great word, Allison. I love that word. All right, so my word of the episode is Esperance. E-S-P-E-R-A-N-C-E. -E. And you can kind of know what it is because of the root word, but it means hope or a belief that what is wanted can be had or that the events will turn out for the best. And so I think you have 
a position of Esperance, even though things are difficult, you have Esperance that things will turn around, that your your life won't always feel this crummy. And so here it is in William Shakespeare's King Lear, which I thought was a great example. To be worst, the lowest, most dejected things of fortune stand still in Esperance, lives not in fear. So it's basically you may be in your most dejected, most unfortunate time, but if you have hope, you do not have reason to fear things will get better. So Esperance, E-S-P-E-R-A-N-C-E. I wonder if I can use that in a sentence like in everyday language. If you speak Spanish, I think Esperanza is a Spanish word. So, and it means right. hope. So. Right. I think you're right. Did you ever read House on Mango Street? I think her, the lead character's name in that is Esperanza, which means hope. So yes, you're exactly right. All right. Well, so fun to have you hosting this week, Allison. Glad that you're here with us. I think that that is another episode in the books. I'm Melissa Parks. And I'm Allison Parks. Now buckle up and write. 